Turn with me again to uh, Genesis chapter 21. As we continue our study of the book of Genesis, Genesis 21, we'll look at the last part of this chapter, verses 22 down to 34 today. A passage we would admittedly probably never choose to preach on, except here it is, and we have to think, what does God want to teach us here? Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34. This week, President Bush uh, introduced his new program to support faith-based social programs. As you know, the criticism was predictable and immediate, for there is almost nothing so problematic in American uh, political life as the relationship between faith and government power or money. Well, that tension is really the setting of this story. The relationship between the man of faith, Abraham, and the king, the secular king, Abimelech. What's the relationship to be? We know this is a tense kind of thing. That's the setting of our story. It won't solve all of our questions about church-state relations, but nonetheless, the Lord has something to teach us in this little section. Let me read it to you, beginning with verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with with me or my children, or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. After the tree, uh, so, so this place, that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. And after the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philcal, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistine. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. I'd like to suggest three lessons that we ought to learn from this interesting little narrative. Three exhortations that the text holds out to us. The first is this. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Humble submission does not come easy to us, does it? We want what we want, and we want it when we want it. Now, we do not want to humbly recognize 
that God's hand is moving and doing something different than what we want. We do not want to submit. We want what we want. But folks, God's ways do not necessarily match our desires. And our responsibility is to humble ourselves before God's mighty hand and submit ourselves his ways. I think we see a bit of that going on here. We see it in both Abimelech and in Abraham. First of all, a hint of it in the actions of Abimelech. You may remember Abimelech from back in chapter 20. Abimelech the king has lots to distrust about Abraham. You remember Abraham lied to him concerning his wife Sarah and, and Abimelech could took Sarah into his harem to be one of his wives. And God brought a curse upon Abimelech's household, and apart from God's gracious intervention, would have caused Abimelech to sin greatly. Abimelech had lots of reason to not have anything to do with Abraham. In fact, we see a little evidence of that in verse 23, where Abimelech wants Abraham to swear that he won't deal falsely with him again. Don't lie to me again, he says. Now, he had lots to be wary of in regard to Abraham. But in spite of all the grievances which Abimelech might have had against Abraham, the hard, cold, obvious reality was that God was blessing Abraham. Everything Abraham was doing was turning to gold. God was prospering him greatly. Abimelech makes a point of it in verse 22. God is with you in everything you do, he says. Oh, this king, Abimelech might not have liked what he saw, but he realized that God's mighty hand was upon Abraham. And he needed to come to grips with that reality. And so Abimelech undoubtedly swallows his pride a little, and comes seeking to make a treaty with Abraham. Verse 23, Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you're living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. Now we could argue, well, that's politically motivated. Abimelech sees that Abraham's growing in influence and power, and he lives right next door, and he wants to seek some security by means of a treaty with this neighbor who is quickly becoming big and powerful. That's probably true. But we read in Psalm 2 that God and his anointed one is the ultimate rising power, and that every ruler on the earth had better humble themselves and make peace with this king, the Lord. From Psalm 2, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. And that's what Abimelech did. He humbled himself, recognizing that God's hand was upon Abraham, and he came to make a treaty with Abraham. Folks, this is what God requires of every king, and of every president, and of every ruler on the face of the earth. God requires that the nations of the earth humble themselves before his mighty hand. 
and pay homage to him. We may believe in separation of church and state in this land, but there is no separation of God and state. Every nation, this nation, every political leader, our political leaders are accountable to God. You kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord. Well, we, we may see a hint of this humility in Abimelech. When we turn to Abraham, we see even more. Think about Abraham's situation for a moment in this uh, treaty that Abimelech wants to make. God had promised to Abraham years and years before, repeatedly promised to him that he would give him this whole land. Remember at one point he said to Abraham, walk the length and the breadth of this land, every place your foot treads, I'll give to you. Now here's Abraham camping out on a piece of this promised land, and here comes Abimelech, the secular king, who claims to be the king over this piece of land, and he wants to make a treaty with Abraham to protect himself from Abraham's rising power. Now how would you have responded? were Abraham. God already promised you this land. Well, you might say, treaty? You want to make a treaty? You must be kidding. God gave me this land. You, mister, will be serving me. (laughs) The feet of my descendants will trample all over you. God has promised this to me. There's no treaty. attitude still around. If you go to the Middle East, that's the conservative Jews. They feel just that way in the land of Israel, don't they? God has given us this. We don't make treaties with anybody. But God had told Abraham, yes, you will inherit this land, but not now. You're going to have to wait. 400 years you're going to have to wait. Your descendants will inherit this land. And so Abraham needed to humble himself before the mighty hand of God and wait for God's appointed time. And that's just what he did. In response to Abimelech's request for a treaty, Abraham immediately responded in verse 24. Yes. Swear to me, Abimelech said, he said, I swear it. And so Abraham learned to live as a pilgrim and a stranger, humbly before the Lord, waiting for God's time, and submitting himself to a treaty with this king, while he waited for God to fulfill his promises. As we read in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham made his home in the promised land, made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country living in tents. Folks, this is where we live our whole life. God has promised us the whole world. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And yet for now we live as strangers and aliens, pilgrims. And as we do, God has required us to submit to human authorities 
for Christ's sake. He calls us to endure suffering while clinging to the promise of glory. As the Apostle Paul said, he calls us to be genuine while we're regarded as impostors. He calls us to be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. He calls us to be poor, though we're making others rich. He calls us to have nothing, though really we possess all things. But in every way, at every turn, like the pilgrim Abraham, we're called to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. I don't know where your experience takes you this morning. What kinds of things that seem so contradictory, what kinds of trouble that seems to be the opposite of what it seems God has promised you. You know, we spend a lot of our lives fighting against God's providence. I will not live with this. I can't live with this. I can't put up with this. No, I won't, God. I'll learn from Abraham. God had promised great things. Yet he learned to live in submission. He learned to live in humility. Humbling himself before the mighty hand of God who will work his plans in his way and in his time. That's not all we learn here, though there's a second lesson. That's this. Pursue peace and justice. Pursue peace and justice. If we only had that first truth, we might get a rather distorted picture of how God intends us to live as strangers and pilgrims in the world. Some have said, well, we just submit. Whatever happens, just submit. No matter what the turmoil, no matter what the injustice, just take it. Certainly some truth to that. Sometimes there's nothing else we can do. Jesus did say, turn the other cheek. But this text would suggest that there is often more to it than just being passive. That living in humility and humbling ourselves before God's mighty hand is more than just a passive thing. As we humble ourselves before him, we are also to pursue peace and justice. That's what we see Abraham doing in this account. We saw his humility before God that accepted living under a treaty with Abimelech even in the land that was his to inherit. But in his submission, he doesn't just become passive then in regard to right and wrong. Abimelech's men, men had stolen a well which Abraham's people had dug. Now, water in the desert is not just a little convenience. This is a matter of life and death. And so while Abraham readily agrees to the treaty, he also insists that Abimelech must give him his well back. See, in verse 25, Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done it. You didn't tell me. I only heard about it today. Oh, Abraham doesn't hold the treaty hostage. He's not negotiating here. But neither does he just forget about it. He's pursuing what is right. Yes, he wants peace with Abimelech, but yes, he wants justice with Abimelech. He contends for what's right. In fact, Abraham doesn't just casually mention this and then let it go when there's not 
when Abimelech's response is somewhat, uh, I don't know anything about it, Abraham pursues it. Not with political maneuvering and power plays, but he pursues it with grace, serving Abimelech to make it easy for him to do justice. Interesting, the picture here. Abraham provides the animals for the covenant that they're about to make. You remember how covenants are made? You take the animals, you slaughter them, you put... You dismember them, half of the pieces here, half of the pieces there. And the two people making the covenant walk between these two piles, saying, if I break this covenant with you, may I be like these dismembered animals. So Abraham provides the animals for, out of his flocks for the, for the covenant-making ceremony. But then when he brings these animals, he also brings seven ewe lambs. And he sets them aside. He sets all up for the covenant ceremony, and Abimelech's looking, and he says, what are these seven ewe lambs over here? And Abraham says, those are a gift for you as a witness that I dug this well. What a delightful way to pursue justice. It's full of grace. Assuming, well, if you didn't know anything about it, then obviously you want to do what's right too. Here's a gift to seal that we're doing what's right today. I dug the well, your people will give it back, right? What grace. What a peaceful way. What a wonderful way Abraham pursues both peace and justice. Oh, we should be surprised. This is Abraham's calling. Back in chapter 18, the Lord said, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing, not just by trusting God, yes, but by doing what is right and just. This is the pattern for God's people. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. But the scripture also says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, heed the case of the widow. God has called us to pursue peace and to pursue justice. Now we desperately need to hear that in our day. For this is how we will be the salt of the earth. This is how we will be the light of the world. There are all kinds of people claiming to pursue justice these days. But there's often little peace in it. There's hatred, and there's brutality, and there's destruction. As people assume that the end justifies any means. No, God has called us to be peacemakers in the world, where we live as pilgrims. Oh, but that doesn't, matter, mean, that we, that doesn't mean that we just abandon what's right in order to not make any waves. You see, as there's a mean-spiritedness that masquerades as justice sometimes, there's also a cowardice that masquerades as peace. God has called us to courageously, diligently, selflessly pursue what is right. To do so with the grace and peace that are in Christ Jesus. Well, finally, there's one more exhortation that our text holds before us. Rest in God alone. 
rest in God alone. It seems that the relationship between us Christians and the governing authorities of the world tends to deteriorate into one of two problems. Sometimes realizing that God's promises are fundamentally at odds with the assumptions of this world, we get into this such an adversarial relationship that we have, will have nothing to do with the civil powers. They are the enemy. We have nothing to do with them. Or we go the other way. Having worked to avoid that adversarial relationship, we sometimes get so cozy with the world's power that it becomes our hope for the future. It becomes our answer for problems. May I suggest that Abraham avoided both of those errors. On the one hand, he made peace with Abimelech. Though God had promised Abraham this land, though there was a history of tension with Abimelech, though Abimelech obviously sought security for himself primarily in the face of God's blessing on Abraham, still, Abraham made a covenant of peace, he worked out the tensions, and God granted him a long stay in that land. He didn't fall into the adversarial trap that he couldn't deal with Abimelech. But neither did Abraham fall into the other trap. Though he and Abimelech came to an amiable uh, 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 an agreement, and though both of them were guaranteed peace from the other, Abraham's faith was never in his deal with Abimelech. Look what happened in the last couple verses, verse 32 and 33. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. The treaty was made, they had come to some agreement, there was some peace between them, and now they parted company. Abimelech and his commander went back to their land, they are political people, they went back to their business. And what did Abraham do? Abraham went and set up a memorial to the Lord. He planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, a tree known for its longevity. And he publicly worshipped the Lord who had given him peace and justice. Call the Lord Yahweh El Alum. Jehovah, the eternal God. John Calvin comments, Abraham wished to bear testimony that he received even this from God. For the same reason, the title of the everlasting God seems to be given as if Abraham would say that he had not placed his confidence in an earthly king, and he was not engaging in any new covenant by which he would be departing from his covenant with the eternal God. 
You see, Abraham, for all of his work to labor, to live in peace and justice, he rested only. He trusted only in the Lord. This was the pattern of Jesus' earthly ministry. On the one hand, here were the zealots who hated the Romans when ready to take up arms and violently overthrow the government. And on the other hand, here are the Sadducees who believed that their alliance with the Romans was the beginning of a messianic age. But Jesus knew that the only hope for the kingdom was that he walked faithfully with his Father, El Alone, the eternal God. The same is true for us. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war, wage war as the world does. No, our confidence is in God alone. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. Sometimes God gives us peace. Sometimes God gives us hardship. But always we rest. We trust. In God alone. As we read in Hebrews 10, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who believe and, be, and are saved. O oh, you whom God has blessed with prosperity, with peace, with all the comforts of life, I call you this morning to the diligence of Abraham as he turns away from Abimelech and renews his commitment where it really matters. My faith, my confidence is in the Lord. God may have given us great blessings, but we hold those blessings with open hands, folks. God gave them, God can take them. They're his, they're not ours. Do not set your heart on the comfort, the convenience, the security. Do not put your hope in the power in the wealth. Our hope belongs. Our rest is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the eternal God, who died and rose and reigns. We rest in Him alone. The new Attorney General John Ashcroft got a lot of criticism for a speech in which he said, quote, we have no king but Jesus. What inflammatory words in the midst of the church-state tensions that we all know exist in political life. But you know, he was right. This is the most basic confession of a Christian. Jesus is Lord. 
For this confession, the Christians in the first century were fed to the lions. They would not say, Caesar is Lord, because they knew better. Jesus is Lord. We have no king but Jesus. Oh, but the way that this plays out in everyday life is really not what many people expect. It's not what some of our friends sometimes hope for. And it's not what our foes often fear. No, it's more like what we see in Abraham. Our forefather who teaches us how to live as a stranger and pilgrim in the land of promise. What does it look like? To acknowledge only this king? Well, it means we humble ourselves before his mighty hand. He's the God of all providence who directs all things. We don't have all the promises yet. We humbly submit to him. It means that we pursue peace and justice. Our hope is not in this world, but it matters what we do in this world. We do it for Jesus' sake. And he calls us to care about the things he cares about. And we rest in God alone. While God may grant us good relations with the powers of this world, while he may prosper us with wealth and convenience, our hope is not here. Our allegiance is not here. Not in this world's power, not in this world's wealth. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in him will we know the fulfillment of all the promises. Our hope is in the one who is resurrected from the dead, having accomplish salvation for us no one less than the son of the res of the eternal god el alone amen shall we pray thank you lord for the example of our forefather abraham who lived in the tension between all the promises you had made him such remarkable promises like you've made up and the realities of being a stranger and a pilgrim. Realities which were humbling, which tested his faith, which presented him great challenges. Oh Lord, may we learn to live like he lived, faithful pilgrims, pursuing peace and justice, submitting ourselves to you, guarding our hearts, that we trust in no one else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.